Hey, this is Larry Miller, professor and director of the music business program at NYU Steinhardt and host of the Musonomics podcast. But right now, you're listening to the Your Morning Coffee podcast with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchhart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Larry Miller and Musonomics, how streaming has impacted the value of music. From Dan Runcie at Trapital, introducing... The Culture Report. And from our good friend Will Page, the global value of music copyrights jumps 18% to a record high of $39.6 billion in 2021. Could it have been even higher? Mm. Well, Jay, we're talking money today. I'm talking money today. Yes, let's get going. There's so many things we got to talk about. We got a bunch of cool audio drops. Man, I am excited. So thanks for everyone that's here with us right now, because Jay and I are going to get ready to start the podcast right now. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Jay, so good to see you, brother. On a Sunday, your Minnesota <sighs> Vikings are killing it, 7-1. and one. Oh. They they squeak through a, a win today and, and a win your Rams is a win. are playing yeah right yeah your your Rams are playing right now so go Rams um how about that intro from Larry Miller or Holy should cow. we say Professor Larry Miller <laughs> we're going to talk about Larry in a minute uh, our first piece is is from Larry Miller and uh, it's a good one but before we get into that um you and I talk about mental health yes, a lot mm-hmm. and. Last Friday, there was a documentary that was released. Um, it's uh, Selena Gomez called My Mind and Me. It's on Apple TV+. And I love documentaries. I know you do, too. Yes, And I do. this one was so well done um, because she's been through so much. This is through, uh, follows her through a six-year period. And she was struggling with not only fame, but the, you know, physical and psychological struggles and diagnosis with lupus and a kidney transplant and just pain, anxiety, depression. And on top of all of that, uh, diagnosed as uh, bipolar. Mm -hmm. So, and you see all of this. Um, The trailer came out October 10th, which is World Mental Health Day. And, uh, you know, I put it in my calendar and 
as soon as I could watch it, I watched it. And uh, it's just a phenomenal documentary. It was directed by Alec uh, Kashishian. Uh, he directed Selena's uh, Hand of Myself music video. Um, but if you get a chance, check out Selena Gomez, My Mind and Me on uh, Apple TV. Well, and it's yeah, it is a Plus. good thing. It is a good thing that these conversations are are continue to be had and are being had and talked about yeah. openly. It's you know that is and you know when you get to a certain age, you can reflect back and you remember when it wasn't the case. And yeah, there was a know, stigma attached to it. There's a stigma, absolutely. And now knowing what I know now, having read so much, I'm I'm quite sure my mom had my late mother had really substantial anxiety. And mm. lots of lots of issues like that, and you know, at the time, it was just you know, you, it, first of all, you you did lots of people didn't talk about it; they didn't tell their doctor about it. But if you did, there were so few tools with which they could uh, help you with few so few uh, medications, and it's just you know, it wasn't yeah. a th- it wasn't acknowledged no. out in the open. It no, really it was wasn't. not openly discussed. And and last week, you and I talked about a story um, by Ryan Dusick. Um, he was the uh, one of the founding members of Maroon 5. And there was a story that he wrote that we covered. And then I spoke with him this last week because he's got this new book coming out uh, in a week or so. Um, it's called Harder to Breathe, a memoir of making Maroon 5, losing it all, and finding recovery. Um, so again, that comes out November 15th. Um, and I had a chance to talk to Ryan about that book. I I asked him about his journey and, and this is what he said. Ryan, thanks so much for joining me. You were a founding member of Maroon 5. You're an associate marriage and family therapist. You've written a book, uh, titled Harder to Breathe, a memoir of making Maroon 5, losing it all and finding recovery. That comes out November 15th. Wow. Tell me about that journey. This book has been a long time coming. Uh, it, it kind of is the culmination of a very long journey for me uh, that started long before we started the band Maroon 5. Uh, looking back and understanding now that I, I suffered from anxiety and uh, things that I didn't really have re- really any, any understanding at a certain age of what it was that I was dealing with until it became a real issue when I was touring with the band. I was having physical problems and uh I I can recognize now I was having, you know, mental health issues as well that contributed to this breakdown uh, that led to me leaving the band and falling into a depression and um, alcoholism for about a decade, which also contributed to my anxiety becoming worse and worse over time until I really hit a bottom spiritually that led to this new journey in the last six and a half years of recovery uh, going back to school and getting a master's in clinical psychology, becoming a therapist, and now writing a book and putting it out in hopes of, you know, inspiring some people that are still struggling to find some hope in recovery and to hopefully relate to my journey and see themselves in it and the possibility of recovery. Wow. Yeah, you know, God bless him, you know, for coming out on the other side. Um, cause yeah. that would have, that would have crushed a lot of, you know, I mean, especially, you know, we've, we've been around musicians, we, we are musicians, you know, you've, you've, uh, we've all had that goal to, to, yeah. to make it, whatever make it means and yeah. to make it to the top. And then oftentimes, you know, this happens in life frequently as well. You get to the top and you realize, 
okay, this wasn't exactly what I thought it would be like. But, yeah. but he, you know, as we talked, when we talked about it last week, um, you know, when, when you, when you get on that machine and you start making it and you start, you know, there's this, everybody that surrounds you has this feeling like if we don't hit, hit the pedal to the metal and do anything and everything, we, we may lose this momentum. And yeah. it puts tremendous pressure on the artists. Yeah. Tremendous pressure. Yeah. And, and kudos to uh, Ryan for coming out on the other end because he, now he's helping other people um, yeah. that are in that situation. And it has been challenging with the pandemic and with streaming and uh, the lack of revenue um, that we were typically used to, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the music industry. Um, there's a lot going on, but it's people like Ryan who are talking about it and making a difference. So again, uh, the book is coming out November 15th. Can't wait to read it. Um, harder to breathe. Really looking forward to that. And God, I love that song when it came out. <laughs> yeah. Was, I remember hearing that on the radio and going, who is this? That is just, it just had that great, oh, man, that great <laughs> right? song. Right? Yeah. By the way, I also want to mention, if you're not on the, on the, uh, if you don't get the emails from Daily Variety, it's a worthwhile thing to sign up for. There's a fantastic interview with Jimmy Iovine. Uh, I think it's by Jim Oswat, as a matter of fact. I don't have ah, it up on my computer. Um, Jim. But Jimmy's getting inducted to the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this weekend, I believe. And so I think I think the the article says that this, he has said this is his last kind of music industry interview that he's going to do. Um, we'll see about that. But um, oh boy, it's a really interesting article. Really interesting. And you and I, you know, we're certainly in his orbit a little bit there at, at our former sure. job at Universal. That's right. And, Certainly, I was in a few meetings with him and kind of sat, saw how he operated. And, you know, people forget this is a guy who started his career literally sweeping the studio, you yeah. know, and then slowly at his first gig was being a, uh, a second engineer on a John Lennon tra- record. It's like, wow, <laughs> you know, and so this is a guy who started in the studio, started producing, uh, started engineering and then producing and uh, and then did a yeah. left turn and decided he wanted to start a record company and then did another left turn and wanted to get in the consumer electronics business. So yeah. a really interesting path and it's a great article. So highly recommended. It's, it's, it's in your email box. If you subscribe to daily Variety. Yeah. And if not, we should put the link in our, in yes, our show notes. I'll do that. I will do that for sure. For sure. Uh, so by the way, the guy that I talked to, if you don't know by now, he is none other than major Vikings fan, uh, Jay Gilbert. <laughs> he is the music industry consultant. He's the curator of the wonderful weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, Warner Music Groups, and Fox Home Entertainment, and just a pleasant human. Uh, thank you so much, Mike. And uh, this guy sitting across from me, one of my favorite people on this planet, Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Groups. And we can get together for lunch and literally talk for hours uh, about <laughs> albums and artists and documentaries and instruments and just everything. So we need to, we haven't had, well, we had a recent lunch 
not too long ago with Shirley Halperin, but we need to uh, correct that and get together soon. Yeah, and we did with uh, Gigi Jones. Oh, the music tectonics. Yeah, just last week. <laughs> so you've already As forgotten soon we these forget. That's right. They say that memory is a second thing to go. <laughs> I can't remember what the first is. But I'm bummed. Thank you very but much. But He's here all week. Uh, and hey, <laughs> while we're at it, Jay, we must, of course, uh, give a shout out to the great folks that put uh, yes, sir. Uh, help us put this show together, uh, including... Our good friends at Banzoogle, the Your Morning Coffee podcast, is brought to you by our groovy, groovy friends at Banzoogle, built by musicians for musicians. Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in, including hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send new newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go over to Banzoogle.com and try it free for 30 days. Just use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's Banzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. Love Banzoogle. Um, we're also brought to you by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music business and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. Edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla, HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music and discovery and marketing platform Bandon. Bands in town. That's easy for you to say. <laughs> easy for you to say. Hey, how about bands in town? Over 74 million that's right. 74 million live music fans trust bands in town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist service platform, connecting over 560,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Bands yep. in town. Yeah, and finally, the Music Business Association uh, and the Music Biz Conference. For more than six decades, the Music Biz Conference has been the point of origin for inspiration and collaboration in the music business. Join us in Nashville, May 15th through the 18th. I'll be attending. By the way, Mike, I, was, I looked it up. I've been attending NARM slash Music Biz Conference now for 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> wow but but again you were two at the first one so yeah you know, yeah my mom took me absolutely yeah. this is nothing about the age of you so thank you yeah, i'm impressed you got my back thank you yes. appreciate it yes indeed well big thanks uh to music businesses to the music business association bands who go hype bot and bands in town boy we really really appreciate it yeah. and uh jay you know what do we say and by the way i'm i'm kind of mad because uh, last night, I went into my local Shell station, specifically asking for a winning lottery ticket. Oh, maybe they misunderstood what you said. I think they must have, because I spent $20, and none of them won the oh, Powerball. I, I read a story about this. I don't really follow it that closely, but was it like $1.5 billion or something? It was. I think it was more than that. It was like one six or something, and now, but nobody won, and so I'm going to give them a second chance. So now chance. it's more. Yeah, it's going to be, uh, which I think is Monday <laughs> okay. night. Yeah, so it's uh, it's going to be more. Right. They say it's going to be $1.9 billion. 
It's only money. It's only money. But I was already like planning what I was going to do on Monday instead of going to work. But uh, uh, well, you have to adjust your plans. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. All right. Let's talk about the first one. We talked about Larry Miller uh, and his Musonomics. I hope he's copyrighted that name because calling it Musonomics is great. It's great. But his his piece, How Streaming Has Impacted the Value of Music. And man, what what a detailed and fascinating article. It's it's really a great a great paper. Um, and if you didn't catch what he said during the intro, he's the professor and director of the music business program at NYU Steinhardt and host of the Musonomics podcast. And I listened to a couple episodes this week. I don't know how that slipped by me. Um, so I'm hanging my head in shame um, that I missed. I'm going to have to catch up on all these. But one in particular, I listened to this episode on neighboring rights. And wow. it finally someone um, could explain because a lot of this stuff is complicated and it's mm-hmm. nuanced and you need someone to walk you through what it means. And uh, my hat's off to uh, to Larry for that particular episode, but I'll be catching up um, binging on on the rest on my morning walks. But I highly recommend the uh, Musonomics podcast. Um, but he's released his paper uh, that you've talked about. Let's uh, let's dig in. Yeah. So it starts with the executive summary, which, like every great paper, does, which yeah. I always gravitate towards. Thank and, you. and having prepared a number of documents, as I know you have over the years, uh, I also know that that's really all anybody ever reads. Sometimes, uh, however, this thing is worth really digging in deep to because there's such an amazing amount of really interesting information. But as it starts, he says, the transition over the last decade from purchases of CDs, vinyl albums and downloads to subscription and advertising supported streaming has had an enormous economic impact on the music industry. And in this report, he says, we set out to quantify this impact, focusing on, number one, the dramatic increase in NPS, that's net publisher's share multiples, paid by purchasers of music copyrights. Number two is the increased interest in music royalties as an investment opportunity. Boy, that's something we have certainly talked about a lot for the last two years. Number three, the reduction and even reversal of the traditional decay curve for music releases. And number four, the increased resiliency of the music industry at large on both a macro and micro level. Well, let's talk about a couple of these points and we'll dig into his report a little bit. But, you know, when you talk about um, this investment into intellectual property, and we've seen a lot of this with hypnosis and KKR and BMG and Primary Wave and all of these different uh, folks, artists that are selling either the publishing or the masters or both uh, that they control. And I think a lot of it has to do with the we've got this predictability now that we never really had in the music Mm -hmm. industry. And if you look at some of these people who are... um, you know, predicting the future. People like Goldman Sachs, you know, a lot of people refer to their estimates of where streaming's going in the next decade or so. And of course, Mark Mulligan over at uh, Music Business Worldwide has a really great kind of counter uh, to that, um, which may be a little bit more optimistic. But I think that there are a lot of reasons to be very uh, positive uh, about some of these things. Although I've been reading that that's that's slowing down just in the number of some of the larger deals, but it doesn't mean that that's going away because it's still a pretty good investment for these folks. Right. And, you know, a lot of these things we're going to talk about today covers certainly 
recorded music, but also publishing. And you and I have talked a number of times about in our era in the music business, even even though we worked for major labels that had major publishing companies, they were the guys in that other office. And, you know, when you we were focused in our early careers and most of my career, for sure, um, on recorded music and not publishing. And so yeah. this is a, a, my awareness and, and knowledge of, of publishing, because publishing goes back well more than 100 years. Sure. Um, and, and so talking about those two things together, um, I find just from my own knowledge base is really helpful because publishing is massive and it's uh, and it's changing as well. And all boats rise, as they say, when when we have success. And yeah. so as yeah. as these streaming service as as the as the streaming business has completely changed the, the models that we now talk about. You know the publish the publishers are mentioned hand in hand with the recorded music companies. Um, so yeah. I find that super super interesting. Um, well, people are learning more about publishing, mm-hmm. and it's thanks to the news. You yes. know, um, when you're talking about the copyright royalty board and you know the Music Modernization Act. You know, I think there's a really nice trend uh, to get songwriters paid more fairly. And you and I interviewed Merck Mercuriatus and had a very long and amazing conversation about that topic, mm-hmm. you know, about, you know, they're the lifeblood of this industry and yet they're the least uh, uh, paid. Um, I'd love to kind of walk through some of the key findings uh, that Larry has in this in this report. I'll kick off the first one. Streaming is responsible for increasing the economic value of music. Okay. Yeah, that's, we know that, but... I think it's impressive, you know, Larry calls out that uh, streaming contributed 61.5% to the value of music transactions in 2021. We reached this conclusion by calculating its impact on the rise of NPS, there it is again, and multiples paid for music catalogs in recent transactions. Right. And as you said just a couple of minutes ago, uh, his, his second key finding is streaming economics attracts music industry investment. He says mm-hmm. the consistent and to a degree predictable revenue streams that streaming generates is largely responsible for the increased investment activity mm-hmm. around music royalties and catalogs as well as record labels exploring public markets. And that really is a dramatic change from call it the old music business. Yeah. Yeah, as well as, you know, this this consumption of streaming and how that has been uh, adopted by so many people. Because you and I, when we worked together, you know, a decade ago, we were talking about uh, this celestial jukebox. And, you know, now that it's become this reality, there's so much more revenue uh, coming from that. And then, of course, he's talking about some of these catalogs. The third point is that streaming has made the music industry more resilient. You know, the streaming model has helped the music industry withstand disruptions caused by external forces. You know, during the pandemic, when nearly every other meaningful source of music industry revenue fell, like touring and merch and all of those things, streaming revenues actually grew. Absolutely. As he also says, streaming reduces the revenue decay curve. I feel like I'm in college. Well, I sort of am. He's a college professor. He's explaining this stuff. He says, well, it's normal for revenues to fall following the prime earning window of new releases. Revenues derived from streaming tend to fall to a consistent level and maintain as a percentage of overall earnings. That's really interesting. It is, and it has to do with the next point as well. But we talk about how much 
catalog plays into the new music business. It's a majority of the business. Now you and I have had the discussion, should it be 18 months or older? You know, Will Page has some interesting points uh, about it as well. Um, the next point, streaming has increased the longevity of catalog music. And I think those two points go hand in hand. The top 5.2% of the 500 best performing albums released in 2018 perform better in their second 18 months following initial release than they did in their first 18 months. So that's considered catalog. Yes. And you and I have debated this a little bit. You know, should it be based on velocity instead of yeah. an 18-month thing? Um, should there be... I don't know. It, it's really interesting to take a look at how not only is catalog 18 months or older, and that's, you know, could be a Dua Lipa or Adele or something, but also some of these viral things that happen with, yeah. you know, Fleetwood Mac and the ocean spray thing, you know, and that blows that thing up or, you know, TikTok and some of these short form video platforms can really make a difference. Um, we reported on, Ghost, the band Ghost, had mm -hmm. a track that wasn't from their new album, Impera. It was prior to that called uh, Mary on a Cross. And because of the activity on TikTok, a couple of weeks ago, it landed on the Billboard Hot 100. Wow. So, yeah. It's amazing. Uh, he also mentioned streaming services face both a dual mandate and historically low profit margins. He says streaming services fa face many cost pressures from the cost of licensing the music streamed. These services compete based not on the music catalog, which they all share, but on the quality of user experience. So, yeah. you know, but again, the, the, the low profit margins... Um, We've talked a lot about this. It's like, well, yeah, but you are using the content to build your business. And so no. no and hold that story. thought on profit margins, because uh, there's a real interesting chart coming up in, in one of the pieces we're going to cover about profit uh, margins. Mm -hmm. So hold on to that. But before we move forward, I, I love that Larry put in some historical context here. Yeah. And so it's, it's really interesting. He says the music industry has experienced many format shifts over the years. Um, we've seen it, right? Notable shifts in revenue, profits, investment activity. You know, when we went from, you know, vinyl and cassette to CD and, you know, CD to digital download and then download to streaming. So that's absolutely correct. The most notable format shift in recent memory is a transition from physical to digital distribution. The impact on the economic value of music from this shift was both immediate and staggering. Initially, the technology rapidly got ahead of the business model. And I think that's really key. Yes. And I haven't heard anybody really say it quite like that. And I thought mm -hmm. this was brilliant, brilliantly put. And I'll do it one more time. Initially, the technology rapidly got ahead of the business model, resulting in an epidemic of unregulated piracy that generated no income for anyone involved in the creation of music. It nearly destroyed the industry, but it also revealed the path forward into our digital future. That's right. I love, and I love that context that, you know, how he set this up. Right. And we were in the trenches when this was all going down and when we yeah. were at Universal and we saw the just staggering decline. And I was not there for the for the rebound, but it, it rebounded. But I don't remember at the time uh, really being that confident or, or necessarily seeing exactly how it would shake out. You know, I remember thinking, okay, I can, you know, you see parts of it, but you're kind of looking through the mist yeah. and it's like, okay, well, how is this going to end up? And 
yeah, it did end up well. But it, it, I remember thinking at the time, I, I don't quite see the future. <laughs> I don't see yeah. how it's going to Well, gonna, you know, land. we didn't know um, that it was going to actually, that streaming was actually going to work. We didn't believe, I think a lot of people didn't believe that people would actually pay a subscription. Right. They would yes. want ownership. By the way, I made a mistake. Let me correct that. The, the um, kind of graph about... Uh, gross margin, profit margin is in this piece. Oh, Larry put yes. this in there. Sorry, Larry, this the, it wasn't Will Page. And it's interesting because he examines gross margins earned by different types of company in, in the music business. So Spotify's gross margin, about 27%. Spotify ad supported, this surprised me a little bit, is only 10% profit margin, uh, mm-hmm. gross margin. Warner Music Group and U- UMG, for example, their average gross margin is 48 percent and if you look back in history and look at like tower records uh, that was like 31 percent so we we hear this all the time that you know streaming isn't fair to artists Um, and i've heard people say to me you know well spotify doesn't pay artists enough well spotify doesn't pay the artist they pay the rights holder and you know if you're the rights holder then you know you're typically paying a royalty to the artist. And then we talk about co-writes and, you know, the average number of co-writes, at least on a story we reported recently was north of five. And of course there has to be an asterisk there because sometimes that's because they're using loops and beats that are, you know, from somebody. So it's not Mm -hmm. necessarily five or 10 people uh, in the room, but I'd really like to take a look at this, um, this part he has here called streaming slice of the pie. Do you see that? Yeah, which page is it on? I think I'm. It's right by that chart on um, average gross margin. Let me see. It's on page ten. Page ten. And I'll kick it off while you're getting to page ten. Under streaming slice of the pie, uh, Larry states that it's clear that the streaming format is where the vast bulk of music engagement takes place today. It's the format that fans use, and it's the format that now contributes the most royalties over the longest period of time. But it's also worth noting that the companies providing the streaming service do so at the slimmest of profit margins. And that's some of we just talked about. Yeah. Particularly when looked at both historical context and compared to other players in the value chain. But you know what? It's interesting. So uh, t- totally unrelated to music, here in Southern California, there's, there's a proposed merger of, um, of some grocery stores. Right. And you look at so so as I'm looking at this, so we got Spotify premium, their average gross margin, twenty seven percent. You mentioned that Warner Music Group is forty eight percent. Tower Records, thirty one percent. It's a status bankruptcy. Uh, But uh, when you talk about like the grocery business, their average gross margins are in the single digits. No kidding. Oh, yeah. The 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 margins on on groceries are really slim well same with gas you know we talked mm-hmm. to glenn peoples from billboard and he uses that analogy all the time or at least that comparison that these uh gasoline you know these stations make 1.4 percent um on gas they make their money from that coke that you buy and right. the the junk food or or whatnot of course, but if I look at this, the Spotify premium with a gross margin of twenty-seven percent, to me, that's pretty darn good. And and I don't really want to hear complaining from Spotify about how you know the cost of licensing all this music. I, I think that to me seems like a really pretty healthy 
gross margin. I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't know other businesses, but as, as I said again, this this sort of merger that they're proposing of the grocery stores, those guys are really slim margins. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Um, uh, but uh, you know, that just that doesn't seem bad to me. Come yeah, crazy. I mean, but conversely, I think that you know Spotify, and we'll use them as an example because mm-hmm. they're kind of the. Um, the popular one, although you and I both know that more music is streamed through YouTube. Um, but, you know, they're they're paying out, you know, a majority of the revenue that they take in to rights holders, you know, right. and, and like north of 70 percent um, they're they're paying out. So while you and I both believe that the songwriters should be paid more, I think we really need to take a look at, you know, how big that slice is. You and I mm-hmm. talked about last week, all these DSPs that are now raising prices. And as much as I don't want to pay more money, I think that's a good thing because I believe that they're underpriced. Um, anyway, you know, getting back to this report, um, I think that it's such a great report and it's so, so dense and deep. There's so many different areas and great charts and graphs. So you can visually see what it's all about. I highly encourage you, um, there's a link to this in your morning coffee, the newsletter, definitely grab this report, um, take a look at it, go through each one of these areas because you'll, you'll learn a lot. The stuff is evolving uh, as we're having this conversation. Absolutely. It is a college level course and it's fascinating. So highly recommended to check. You it know out. what, you know, what we forgot though, What's... is that I, I forgot that I had a conversation with Larry this <laughs> This last week, a great conversation with him about this report. And I, I got so, you know, interested in telling you and talking to you about this report that I almost forgot. So this this last week, um, I spoke with Larry Miller about this report. And and this is what he had to say. All right. Larry, thanks for joining me. How did this report come about? And what were some interesting takeaways that you found? Uh, I've been writing about of the major trends that are driving value creation in the modern music industry now for a number of years. And one area of focus that I've been writing quite a lot about is how labels create value in the modern world when it has become optional now for, let's just call it the better part of a generation to have to sign with a label. And so to explain to an investor or a civilian or say uh, anybody on capitol hill making policy about the music industry that will affect you know music creators it's important to be able to answer questions like that like well you know when it's when you don't have to sign with a label anymore what do labels actually do so i've been writing a fair amount about uh, that over over the last several years and uh, often getting involved in uh, uh, CRB testimony uh, when we periodically have to, you know, arm up and go out and explain, you know, why uh, the rates should be higher for for, for music creators uh, across the board. But one of the things that I'd been uh, thinking about and hadn't really taken the time to sit down and and do in an organized fashion was to take a look at at streaming 
and how do we measure the economic impact of streaming in a world where we know every year for the last at least decade how fast streaming is growing. We can measure it by the number of subscribers to the major platforms. We can make, we can measure it in terms of uh, revenue by source for both uh, record companies and music publishers. We can track it that way. And we know that the growth of streaming over the last decade has really only moved in one direction, right? Over what what's really been a, a 10 or so year period. We also know that in in recent years, especially over the last, uh, let's call it three to five years, that there has been just a tremendous influx of new capital buying music catalogs, buckets of music rights, uh, either uh, on the music publishing side or on the label side, or, or in some cases, both. And sometimes that money is being spent by the incumbents, the major record companies and publishers, or the uh, well-capitalized independents. Other times it's through very large uh, Wall Street private equity hedge fund players, even sovereign wealth funds from other parts of the world who have invested, you know, many billions of dollars now in the music industry. And in fact, last year alone, uh, there were six and a half billion dollars of transactions that were that were in the hopper of which a little over five and a half billion actually closed. So we know that. We also know the headlines that the multiples, the revenue multiples, whether we're talking about net publisher share, NPS on the publishing side, or net label share, if it's a label deal, have also been increasing, uh, especially for the superstar acts that generate the most headlines, but that multiples have really gone up a lot. And although we know, you know, viscerally, that streaming growth has everything to do with the growth in the multiples that sophisticated buyers have been willing to pay for music-related assets. We weren't really able to figure out how to demonstrate causation. I mean, you know it, right? Streaming is going up. Streaming is now you know, 84% of recorded music revenue. Uh, there are all sorts of knock-on effects on music publishing that we understand. And we get all that stuff up from, what, you know, 2% back in, the, call it 2011, 2012, that year before Spotify entered the U.S. market and most other developed markets around the world. So what we wanted to do uh, in this report was a few things. One was to develop a rigorous analytical way of thinking about how streaming caused values to go up. And so I would say that, you know, uh, you know, headline finding number one here is that for last year, 2021, just looking at the music publishing side, that uh, because it's a it's an easier way to think about uh, revenue impact than recorded music, which is 
you know, which has, you know, some different factors that, uh, that drive recorded music revenue and, you know, publishing, uh, has, uh, you know, many sources that comprise publishing revenue, some of which is streaming related and much of which is not, uh, especially on the public performance side where, you know, radio and general licensing and television and cable are still such important revenue drivers. But to be able to isolate streaming's impact on on music publishing required being able to come up with a, de- a defensible way to model uh, streaming's impact on the growth in NPS valuations. And without getting into the like super boring granular, you know, detail of of how we did that, uh, we were able to uh, explain how and why streaming for just last year alone uh, comprised sixty one and a half percent, just under sixty two percent of value growth in the music publishing business. Uh, a couple of the other things that we wanted to do uh, while doing that was to take a holistic look, including updating really some of the some of the best and most important work that had come out in the several years previous to that. And you may remember that uh, our friend Will Page did a really important piece back uh, in 2017 about how catalog, the definition of how we think about music catalog was probably going to have to change. And he did this deep dive on uh, Imagine Dragons was the uh, was the case that he studied in that report. And I had a strong hunch that there were many records that did better in recent years in their second 18 months of release than their first 18 months of release, which sort of flies in the face of conventional catalog definition. And so we were able to engage Luminate uh, to look at all of the records, all of the albums that charted in uh, 2018. And we had to go back to 2018 because we needed we needed three years of data, the first 18 months and the second 18 months. And what and what we saw was that something over five percent, it was about five point two percent of the albums that hit the chart in twenty eighteen did better in the second eighteen months than in the first. Uh so it's not every record, but we also noticed that the shape of the decay curve was changing and that records are hanging hanging around longer and it's not like they're generating all of the income that they're ever gonna generate in the first you know, year or 18 months of release, like the way it used to be for most records, and that and that records had a much longer uh, uh, earning potential as a result of the way that people are discovering and consuming music now due to streaming. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, uh, a lot, a lot to learn. A um, lot to learn and a lot to pay attention to. And um, yeah, this stuff is there's there's so much to know, so much to to kind of process and digest. Um, yeah. But but we got to do it. So and so. you need someone like Larry to kind of Absolutely. break it down into English, so we you know us knuckleheads can kind of highlight <laughs> the uh, report and learn from it. <laughs> and before right. we move on to this next piece. Um, if you haven't listened already, uh, go check out Musonomics, the podcast. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely phenomenal. 
And we, we, we think that Larry has, has to have had on mic experience in radio. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's too good. You know, that's that's what we're guessing. Uh, The next one, speaking of reports, uh, this is from our friend Dan Runcy at Trapital. It's introducing the culture, the culture report. Excuse me. Let me get the marbles out of my mouth. And we also had a conversation with you also had a conversation with Dan Runcy. Yeah. When I saw this report, um, what I loved about it is that it wasn't just data and insights, although I love that stuff. It's it's it's. What, are, what does it all mean? And if, if you don't know who uh, Dan Runcy is, you know, we talk about him on this podcast a lot. He uh, created and runs the Trapital uh, newsletter and podcast, which is an industry leader on in the world of, of hip hop. So um, he came out with this report. It's called the Culture Report. And uh, yes, you're right. I had a chance to, uh, to talk with uh, Dan. Um, so... This is what Dan tells us about the report. Let's listen in. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Jay and Mike, you do a great job on this show and it's an honor to pop into your morning coffee. So let's talk about it. The 2022 Cultural Report for Trapital. This has been in the works for a little over a year now. I got an email from David Boyle, who some of the listeners may know from the work that he does with the IMS report, and he says, hey, we do this report every year. We cover electronic dance music and dance more broadly. We think we could do something similar for hip-hop, given some of the trends that were going on. So he shared what we had. We looked at the report, and I think what makes something like Trapital unique is that this isn't just sharing numbers and data. It's combining that with the insights and the things that we have. So I thought this would be a great opportunity to share some exclusive numbers we have, but matching that with what Trapital is known for, the qualitative insights and people getting a clear understanding based on the trends that are happening both from a macro and micro level. So the numbers and a lot of the research that we had were able to help back that up. So it's great to finally see it come together. We were able to work with a great team to help put it together and I'm really happy with the response so far. Three big takeaways, though, that I want listeners to remember with this report. You should definitely dive into when you get a chance, but three takeaways. First, there's been a lot of discussion about hip-hop's decline, and there are some numbers that are starting to back it up. 2021 was the first year in almost a decade that hip-hop's share of total U.S. recorded music revenue dropped. It dropped 0.5%, so it's not a huge amount, but it's still noticeable considering the rapid growth. And remember, there was all that news, especially at the height of streaming's rapid growth when hip-hop had taken over rock and pop as the most popular genres. Well, a few things are changing that. One, the growth and the international expansion of streaming, more artists, more fans and listeners from other countries are getting involved and they're listening to music from their own cultures. And that's getting a lot of popularity within the U.S. as well for the listeners that are here. And that's great. So naturally, when that happens, it's going to lower the market share. But I think there's a few other things, too, just in terms of how hip hop artists get categorized, because there's a lot of artists from other countries like Latin America. Someone like Bad Bunny does consider himself a rapper. So eventually it probably makes sense to put him in the hip hop category as well or seeing what that looks like, because a lot of these things shape how we think about who's put in which categories. And there's also differences such as how sales get tracked, such as album bundles. And that was something that I think benefited hip hop artists a lot, but rule changes there. And I do think the rule changes were right, but rule changes there. 
hurt hip hop artists a bit when it comes to being able to make money off of their albums and off of the revenue that they have that gets recorded. And then even something like vinyl sales, because there's limited inventory, tons of supply chain issues right now. So when there's limited inventory for the supply, that's going to affect the demand, whether that means that only the artists that are submitting well in advance are getting the limited supply of vinyl that there is, or labels are prioritizing who gets to have more vinyl or not, we're seeing those things start to shape and it's starting to impact how much revenue that artists are getting. So some of these things are things to keep in mind when we really say whether or not hip hop is truly in decline or is it based on how we're measuring things. And that's just a little bit about what this report goes into. We talk about music investing trends, specifically with catalogs, with startups that are in the creator economy, specifically in music, trying to attract more artists and musicians. Where is this space going? What are some things to look out for? Who are the artists that are making money? How are they making money? What type of ways are artists leveraging their influence to make the most money possible? And it's a really fascinating breakdown. I hope you get a chance to take a look at it. You can go to trapital.co slash culture dash report. You can download it there. Also, I talked about the report as well. I talked in a bit more depth in it on the most recent episode of the Trapital podcast. So go make sure you check that out and listen after this if you haven't already. Jay and Mike, thanks again for having me to talk a little bit about this report. So excited. Hopefully everyone goes and checks it out. What I do like about this, Jay, is that, again, it, you, you've got data, you've got numbers, but he's putting it also in sort of a, a, a context yes. um, ab- about, uh, about the growth of genres and about uh, the global reach of genres and things like that. So it's, it's a different, interesting perspective of, of, uh, of analyzing yeah. data. Quite yeah, frankly. I love it. I absolutely love it. And and you and I, let's let's go through the the topics that he covers in this report. But be, before we do, um, the introduction to this report, uh, Dan states that this is Trapital's first ever culture report. This is your breakdown on important annual trends in music, media, and of course, culture. This report is a collection of data, insights, and interviews from industry experts on various trends. Um, they did this in in uh, uh, conjunction with Dice, which is a ticketing company mm-hmm. um, that's really trying to offer a fair ticketing experience. And uh, uh, he credits Russ Tannen, who's the president of uh, Dice. But uh, uh, let's talk about some of the things. If you read this report, and we highly encourage you to to download this report again, it's it's in your morning coffee this last week. Um, let's talk about what topics are covered. Sure. He starts with, you know, where does hip hop go next? He starts with saying in the streaming era, hip hop's growth has been on the rise. In 2018, it became the U.S. In the U.S., it was the most popular genre of music. He says hip hop is still on top and its revenues are still growing. But after nearly a decade of market share growth, hip hop's share of total revenue has declined. And he mentions that. Uh, in 2020, the total revenue was 2.7 billion. The sh- uh, the share of to- total revenue was 28.2 percent. Although it went up to 2.7 billion in 2021, that share of of total revenue actually dropped 27.7. Right, right. And he mentions that in the uh, in in the uh, audio a little bit. And just to kind of put a fine point on it, there's a reasons for that slight decline, um, and really. 
you know, while pop, rock, country, dance, they've maintained their market share. Latin music has grown the most from hip hop's share. And, and he mentions that it has to do with, or it could be partly to do with how they're categorized. Right. And you and I talked about this before we hit record, like Bad Bunny is, is that's hip hop, you know, what, but it's listed as Latin music. Yes, yes. So just by classifying things and, and has, as he spoke about, you know, rule changes with bundles or, you know, the vinyl supply chain issues. There, there's a lot of issues for that. And it's not, you know, it's not like dropping off the face of the planet or anything, but there was a slight decline, but there's a lot of reasons for it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and including a lot of things, like he says, early mover advantages don't last forever. American hip hop artists and their fans are always early on new platforms from MySpace music to YouTube ringtones to streaming the list goes on other genres followed hip-hop's lead on streaming which ate into its share so you know there's a, a lot of these things that he mentions are kind of like they're not dramatic things but when you add them all together it can kind of point to that kind of decline we were referring to yeah let's let's talk about a couple of these i mean we could spend all day but what i'd really like to do is cover cover the topics um, I'll take the first uh, six, maybe you take the next, next sure. six, and we can dig into a couple of these. We talked about where does hip-hop go next. Um, rap's capital spreads the wealth. Live music bounces back. The power laws of streaming. Millionaires selling music. Billionaires selling product. <laughs> I love that one. Millionaires selling music. Billionaires selling products. Yeah. Uh, even though that's out of uh, out of order, I want to take that one because he says the culture's wealthiest artists use their music to influence to build companies that sell products that consumers want to buy. Time and time again. So he's talking about product sales from artists like Rihanna, Diddy, Jay-Z, Dr. Dre, Yee. The investing from Nas and Snoop Dogg and Chameleon Air. Live performances, of course, by Beyonce, Drake, Kendrick Lamar, Travis Scott. TV and film from from artists that are now actors, brand partnerships, music revenue streaming, you know, all of these things in, in all of these, uh, all of these categories are, are well over a billion dollars when you talk about net worth. So you've got this leverage, basically artists leveraging in hip hop, um, in pretty dramatic ways. So yeah. it's, it's, um, you know, it, it it's it's interesting to see it in a in a chart like this with you know by investing you've got these particular performers by TV and film you've got these other performers, it's pretty remarkable actually and yeah. and that's and I think that's also a, um, a a a testament to artists concepts these days of basically music is one thing that they do but they do lots and lots of other things and yeah. using that music talent and skill and success and popularity to leverage other things yeah. is something that really is this generation's and you see it very predominantly in hip hop. It's, it's yeah. pretty remarkable. I'm not a businessman. I'm a business man. Mm -hmm. um, he talks about raps capital spreads the wealth. And, you know, I had heard that the Southern states were a bit more popular for hip hop, but I didn't know it was as dramatic uh, until I saw his chart that he puts uh, in here. Atlanta has yet to give up its crown, but it's starting to spread the wealth. Uh, he says its share of artists on the Spotify charts has declined. And he has it broken up by East coast, Midwest, South and West coast. And even though it's declined, uh, over the last few years, 
man, the South is just uh, a beast, you know, when it comes to uh, hip hop. Um, so just one of the many topics uh, that he covers uh, in here. And we should hit uh, a few of the others um, before we move uh, further down. TikTok is the new MTV. Mm-hmm. Um, pay me in equity. Investing in music startups. Um, NFTs are best for established acts. Um, investing in women in hip hop. And he has a whole section about the people who listen to hip hop. And I mean, we can't go through every single one of these. We're just going to go through a few of these uh, to give you a sense of what this report's all about. But um, I see a lot of these reports like from RIAA, IFPI, and they just have some charts and a few basic facts. Um, This takes each one of those and really tells you what it means. Absolutely. I mean, it's like Larry's, this is this is a, an unbelievably worthwhile download to, to read and check out. And I, gosh, I just tip my hat to uh, to Dan and his team because it's beautifully researched, beautifully laid out, and very much worth your time to, to check it out. It's there's a there's a it, there's a lot of data in it, and it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So. Yeah. Check it out, uh, Dan Runcy. We are tip our hat, brother, to uh, to that hard work and that that kind of uh, that perspective on this for this particular report. It's great. Yeah, and if you don't already subscribe to Trapital, uh, check out the uh, the newsletter. Um, check out the podcast. It's uh, world class stuff. And if those two reports aren't enough for you, the last one, Jay, from our good friend Will Page, the global value of music copyrights jumps eighteen percent to a record high of $39.6 billion in 2021. But he asks, could it have been even higher? And uh, again, another yeah. economics... <laughs> I feel like I'm back in college when I start reading these things. It's, uh, it is... Uh, oh my God, it's, it's remarkable stuff. And of course, his book, Tarzan Economics, yeah. is really the Bible for this yeah. stuff. Yeah, and we've read. raved about that on this podcast. We had him celebrate our hundredth episode by doing an interview. Will is very smart. He's hilarious. And <laughs> he's got he, a great sense of humor. He, he, I love the way he writes. Um, it's a little, there's a little sass involved in here. Yes. Um, but I think he's, he's hinting, you know, could, could that number have been higher? I think absolutely it could have been. Yes. I mean, even if you just look at vinyl, if we could have actually fulfilled vinyl orders over the last two years, uh, who knows? I've had yeah. people say that it could have been 20, 25% higher. And I think that's a, a conservative estimate. And he did some really um, kind of forensic um, um, in. Uh, <laughs> I'm stumbling on my words. He did he did a lot of forensic research going back uh, back to 2001, which he he says is the earliest data available, and he's talking about kind of the value mm. of these copyrights, and it's really fascinating. Um, he said that year the global value of recorded music was 28.3 billion dollars. Interestingly enough, of that of that amount of money, that pie, tw- just 23% went to publishing. Here we are talking about publishing again and the difference between uh, the, the, the two industries and how much of that pie they collect. Um, yeah. 
on up to today, that $39.6 billion, and we've got uh, the publishers coming in at 34% of that number in, in 2021, which is the, the most recent year for information. Mm-hmm. So as he says, the great news is the value of copyrights keeps on growing. Um, and yes, you know, and which of course is why we see all of these, uh, you know, catalogs being sold and all that stuff. People are paying attention to this. Wall Street is paying attention to these numbers and they're going in the right direction, yes. which is why we are where we are. Yeah, it's it's a thing, you know. Um, he states in this report that the whole purpose, you know, really remains the same, whether you're investing, operating, or earning from music copyrights. You ought to know how much it's all worth and how each piece of the puzzle is trending. That's so important. This year, we not only have a really big figure to digest, but big improvements in methodology, you know, he talks about SISAC, uh, for example, um, has removed U.S. digital mechanical rights income and helpfully revised all prior years for consistency because they recently formed, you know, the MLC, the Mechanical Licensing Collective, mm-hmm. and that is not a SISAC uh, member. So there is so much in this report. It's It reminds me a little bit, even though it's a totally different kind of take on the business of what Larry Miller's put together um, this, this is different, but there's a lot to it. And I highly recommend that you, you print it out and, you know, I know that's old school, but as you read through it, kind of highlight certain things that are, uh, important to you. Yeah. Um, and this, this week's episode and for sure, a lot of the things in the newsletter are really kind of, they're dense and they're, but they're really important to kind of absorb as best you can. And yeah. a lot of the stuff I have to read twice, to be honest, and sometimes three times to just get my head around it. And yeah. And, and a lot of it is just about fairness. You know, um, Will says in this piece, talking about fairness, at face value, copyrights have never been worth this much. Um, he says in his recent publication, Global Value of Music Copyright is bigger now than it's ever been. He says he was able to back out a figure for 2001. Oh, that's what you just talked about, that earliest data that was available. Yes, yes. Um, And, you know, that year, global value of recorded music, you know, $28.3 billion. Um, And he has some really great charts. I realize you just kind of covered some of this. But he has these really great charts um, that show visually kind of the the pie and how it's growing. And then the last thing I'll kind of say on this section is that he says that, you know, the great news is that the value of copyright, you know, keeps on growing. Nostalgia has long been the biggest enemy of the music industry, a misplaced belief that we need to get back to the good old days when record labels used to sell CDs to stores by the weight of pallet. Nostalgia can uh, mislead and misinform. Music copyright has never had it so good. Right. Well, and you know, it's uh, we talk a lot about the the do the do the artists have it so good, and in some ways they actually do, um, but in other ways they do not. But boy, when you look at it from a business perspective, and it was interesting on one of these charts in here, uh, where I was, you know, we talked about that number in two thousand and one, and then you see the 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 overall value drop in twenty fourteen from two thousand and one. So tw- two thousand and one was twenty eight point three billion. But again, as we as we head to 2014, 24, I'm sorry, 25.3 billion, 
Um, and a more, far more of that was publishing, but that was, you know, that was kind of the beginning days of streaming. And then from 2014 to 2021, up to almost 40 billion. So you see yeah. that kind of recovery and the changing face of what the business is. And yeah, you know, this, this may be the good old days, you know, that we, yeah. may, be, we may be there. Well, he talks about revenue streams that I hadn't even considered. You know, mm-hmm. you and I talk about things like publishing and masters and touring and merch and sync and some of these things, but there's so much more to it. You know, the, the Brabeck brothers have an amazing book on monetization, but he talks about something in here I, I hadn't considered, and that is terms like production music and library music. Yes. Um, it's in a section called royalty-free music, adding a new piece to the copyright puzzle. Um, publishers, large and small, will have a division dedicated to this form of quote-unquote buyout music that can be acquired by users with an upfront payment. And we've seen this. You know, he says new entrants like Epidemic Sounds, you know, um, they've really blown up this business, offering a subscription-based model to over 35,000 royalty-free music tracks and 90,000 sound effects. And with everybody you know, using these DAWs, digital uh, audio workstations, and they're mm-hmm. recording high-quality albums at home or on the road, and and there's these loops and beats and all of these things that we're talking about. It's it's a thing. There's a lot to it. It is a thing, absolutely. And, of course, with also with all the production, film and television that is going on, and, and they need music, and a lot of smaller budget productions don't have a lot of budget for music, these, these kind of catalogs, uh, that are royalty free essentially, but they're they're easily licensed, and the the owners have a lot of flexibility in the way they don't with other uh, catalogs. So it's yeah, it's pretty it's pretty interesting how the those are now kind of considered, and and of course that's a huge business. A good buddy of mine works over at Universal in that very division, and yeah, is pretty amazing. He also talked about the dollar dominance, you know, and we kind of forget because things are still you know in terms of of. Uh, of, of cost of goods here still pretty high, but the dollar is super strong worldwide right now against a lot of right. other currencies. And he says right. one obvious cause for concern is the economic climate or more specifically the strengthening U.S. dollar and its impact on this global calculation. He says, I hadn't the, thought uh, of that. I mean, no, yeah. As an economist, of course, he would think he of does, it. He does, yes. He says, you know? since January, January of 2021, we're seeing something of a hockey stick effect rising from around 110 to 130 as the dollar became a safe haven for nervous investors and institutions. So, you know, it's again, when you talk about music and when you talk about the things that we're used to talking about in music which is the artists and releases and chart positions and all that stuff but now here we are talking about the 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 global amounts of money and then the impact of currency rates and things like that dude this is business stuff (laughs) it's like it's this is not my core strength if i even have a core strength but it's fascinating to read it and check it out and and think see the things that somebody like will's with Will's experience and knowledge base that they consider when they put all these reports together. It's fascinating. Yeah. You know, one, one thing I want to make sure we, uh, we touch on before we go is he talks about the U S share of the global recorded music yeah. uh, business. And we, we know that the, the USA is, is a leader in the music industry, but in 2011 U S was 26% of that global business, according to the IFPI. 
Well, fast forward, you know, 10 years later, and it goes from that 26% to 38%. Yeah. And he says that this year's, uh, you know, mid-year report showed the U.S. growing at an impressive 8%, meaning that the U.S. market could be worth $10 billion by the year end. That's pretty impressive. It is. It is. Well, uh, your homework, fellow listeners, is to go and download all three of these articles that Jay and I have talked about. And... Uh, Take your time because it's dense stuff. It's it's like reading textbooks, but it's you know if you we all need to expand our knowledge base. And when you talk about it's a business, not the music art, it's the music business. Yeah, and it's very important. And we have all these tools at our disposal, including the great uh, newsletter that you do and the articles and things that are contained within, uh, among including these. And boy. It's it's great stuff, but boy, it's it it's uh, it's dense, and and I have to read a lot of these things multiple times. But fascinating. Well, the last thing I'll say on it is that yes, you are absolutely accurate. There's a lot of information here to digest, but the beauty of these reports um, is that. They're aesthetically pleasing and they have wonderful visuals and you don't have to read, you know, page after page after page. Right. You can kind of, everything's laid out so well that you can not only see what's in the report and read the executive summary, but then you can get kind of a visual on what is being um, communicated here. So don't, don't be afraid of it. It's, it's great stuff. Definitely go in there, pull this stuff down. Uh, it's really good stuff to have. Well, and it's also, again, talking about the different perspectives that they all kind of approach for, for, with data. And so it's, it's kind of slightly different stories, which are, which are all meaningful and interesting and, and thought provoking, which is what, yeah. uh, what we all expect. And on that note, Jay, it's time to wrap up the, uh, the episode. Thanks for listening to 117, episode 117. Both Jay yeah. and I certainly appreciate it. We also want to thank the Music Business Association, Banzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town, for rocking our world and helping us put the we show together. We appreciate it. We do appreciate that. And of course, we appreciate you, the listener, Jay. And I do not take that for granted. Nope. And uh, to say we could not do it without you is is absolutely quite true. We couldn't do it without you. So thanks for listening this week. We really appreciate it. And the good news is Jay and I will be back next week for episode 118. <laughs> so thanks for listening. Have a wonderful week. And we will see you next time on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.